You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Four years ago, Allison Waynes was an inspiring uh, author. Uh, so she was pleasantly surprised when her book, Girl on a Train, shot up the sales chart. Uh, in fact, from Amazon.com, it was the number one book being purchased and downloaded. Uh, but she quickly got a lesson in humility when it was discovered part of the reason the book had such high book sales is people were mistaking it for another book. Uh, at the same time, there was best-selling author Paula Hawkins, whose book, The Girl on the Train, uh, was very popular. So a lot of people were purchasing Allison's book, reading it, talking about it, thinking they were actually reading and talking about the other book. Obviously, cases of mistaken identity and misunderstanding don't always have such positive endings. And a case in point would be looking at how Jesus Christ as the Messiah was the misunderstood Messiah. And so in our study of looking at how different Gospels present Jesus Christ, we're going to look this morning at John chapter 7, where we get a glimpse into one scene of many others that present to us the misunderstood Messiah. And it's important for us to look at this to figure out, well, what, what were people thinking and why? And then ultimately, we want to make sure that we're clear on the answer as to who is Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 7, remember that the purpose of John's gospel is one that John tells us in his own words in chapter 20, is that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So everything that is written in the Gospel of John is pointing to that statement, that you might walk away after reading this and hearing it saying, I am convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. But in this particular scene, in verses 25 through 44, we have some very evident misunderstanding of who Jesus is and even what the results of that will be. And so let's look at verse 25. Verse 25, we read, At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? So as we come to this, we are confronted with the scene of the misunderstanding. Like, when is this taking place? Where are we? And that's very important for us to move forward in the rest of this passage to look at the scene itself. Uh, this occurs within the last six months of Christ's public ministry. So he's been actively out and about teaching for two and a half, almost three years now. But you notice in verse 25, the location is clear for us. It's Jerusalem. And if I were to say to you, Jerusalem is the blank, you would probably say to me, Jerusalem is the what? What? Okay, city, and, and what, do, what do we associate Jerusalem with? It's the, what kind of city? Capital. Yeah, it's the capital. Isn't it the holy city? And that's even today, it's still referred to in Judaism as the holy city. So keep that in the back of your mind. We're in Jerusalem, quote unquote, 
the holy city. So that's the location. But then we need to step back even further and say, what, what's the occasion? I mean, Jesus has been in Jerusalem many different times. Um, but the occasion here is very significant. And you see this mentioned uh, a couple of different points in the text. The occasion is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And, and what this feast is, it occurs in between September and October. Uh, it's seven days long, but you can also have an eighth day that kind of concludes it. But basically seven to eight days. And it's time in which the people of Israel were to set up temporary shelters outside and, and live in those shelters or at least sleep in them overnight as a reminder of how God took care of them when they were in the wilderness, how he provided for them. Uh, this is a feast and celebration still observed in Judaism today. Uh, so if you have access and happen to know where a synagogue is, if you see a synagogue during this time, you'll often see some booths like this, just boughs of branches set up to her as a reminder. But it's also an interesting festival because it includes two other rites within it that involve wine, water, and, and lighting of candles. And in John's gospel, Jesus talks a lot about him being the bread of life, the light of the world. So you have a significant religious festival going on. And, and in that festival, there'll be a point when you get towards the end of it that the priests would lead a procession where they would be carrying two containers, one of water and one of wine. And they would bring these to the temple. They would pour them out in respective bowls and they'd be reciting and the people would be singing one of the Hallel Psalms. And when they got to a certain point, the people were to hold up a fruit in their left hand or a fig tree leaf or myrtle tree leaf and they were to yell out together, praise be the Lord. Because it was also a reminder to them that there would come a time in the last day when God would pour out his spirit. So you have this festival, this religious feast that is rich and pregnant with these very important biblical truths. So that's an important backdrop to this scene of misunderstanding. Now notice, if you would, uh, the timing of Jesus' appearance at this feast. So I said to you, it's basically seven days long. And you'll notice in the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, it says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. Now, we read a little further and we understand that Jesus was not initially planning on going to the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. And part of the reason is, always in line with God's timing, was that opposition was increasing. And given the miracles that he's done, would there be a premature attempt to either try to arrest him, which we see will happen, or that they would rush to make him king before the work on the cross was accomplished? So he was deliberately looking at not going to this feast. Now you go to verse 14. 
And in between, he does decide to go. And we can trust that this is in obedience to the Father. You get to verse 14, it says, Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go to the temple courts and begin to teach. So he doesn't initially go. Then when he does go, it's about halfway through that week-long celebration. And then you notice in verse 37, there seems to be another slight gap here where he's there and does some teaching. But then you notice verse 37, we read, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice and talks about those who are thirsty, possibly coinciding with this act that the priests would do of pouring out the water and a reminder of that last day when the Spirit of God would be poured out. So the timing, occasion, and location make up the scene of the misunderstanding related to the Messiah. But now we look at the scope of the misunderstanding. What, what was going through the hearts and minds of, of these people who, who made this annual trip to the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths? It was one of three annual feasts. It was required by law that every male attend this feast. And so you have throngs of people flooding into Jerusalem for this. Well, look at verses 25 through 27, and, and we get an insider's feel of, of what was going through the crowds. Verse 25, we continue, it says, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from, and when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. There is much confusion here. So they're looking at this, and it was rumored that Christ might attend this, I think because of the, 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 the prophetic enthusiasm of people. You know, could this be the moment at this feast? You know, the Messiah is revealed, whoever that could be. Because notice they say he's speaking publicly. He, he's speaking boldly without any sense of hesitation or fear of the authorities. So the question would be, have the authorities, our religious leaders, scaled back and, and maybe now accepted that this could be the Messiah? Notice the question that runs through the crowd is, is he the Christ? Is he the anointed one? The one foretold in the Old Testament. But then you notice there's also some very clear misconceptions here about the Messiah. And I don't think it takes long for us to realize there are many people who have misconceptions, misunderstandings about who Jesus Christ is, which is why it is so important for us to, one, be very clear on what the scriptures teach and to be ready and looking to share that with others. But notice the misconception in verse 27. The misconception is that no one will know where the Messiah is from. Now, you may wonder, well, is there any biblical support for this? They're, they're not looking at what's said in the book of Hebrews about Melchizedek or anything like that. Um, this is 
purely a, a Jewish concept of the Messiah. In other words, in the first century, part of the messianic teaching was that there was such a thing as the hidden Messiah, uh, that he would come from really nowhere, and no one would know anything about him. He would just suddenly appear. Now, that is a misconception. The scriptures do not teach that. They do speak of Jesus Christ, as I referenced from the passage in Hebrew, like Melchizedek, one whose origins are unknown because he's eternal. Uh, but, but not that we will not know anything. And you'll find that this misconception contradicts another misconception that some of them have. But notice in verse 31, again, as we're going through and listening to the crowds, Verse 31 says, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Now, John's gospel is, is centered around six to seven signs that the Messiah will do. Miraculous events that are more than just a miracle. They point to and confirm his identity. And so some in the crowd are reasoning that, well, if this one is the anointed one, what we've seen and heard him do would be proof of that. Because who could sort of top that? Who could come along and do miracles that involve powers over nature, powers over the supernatural, uh, spiritual powers of announcing someone's sins are forgiven? So there are some that did put their faith in Christ, and we could say that they did get his identity right by God's grace. But we're not done with the misconceptions. We have the one that was stated in verse 27, this thought of a hidden Messiah that, bam, just comes. But then notice verses 40 through 42, you have two additional misconceptions. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So one misconception they have, another one, is that it's not possible that a prophet could come from Galilee. Now, we can challenge that in Scripture, and we'll see later on, that that is completely wrong. They did not get that from Scripture. They got that from the rabbinic teachers and explanations they were giving, but that's a complete misconception. And then the next misconception in that same verse is they're concluding that Jesus did not and was not born in Bethlehem, and he is not in the line of David. In other words, that what you have here possibly is an illegitimate child. So you start to think about what confusion there was here over the identity of Jesus Christ. And this crowd is mixed. You more than likely have Galileans who are in this crowd, people from the area of Galilee, which could have had a more accurate 
concept of who Christ was, but you also have many Judeans in this crowd. And that may lend to the confusion here. So three very strong, influential misconceptions. And then the result is stated in verse 43. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand, or excuse me, verse 43. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Now the word divided there is a word that we derive the term schism from. They're, they're split on who this one is. And notice even in this concept, when they say maybe he's the prophet, there was also a Jewish teaching that the Messiah is different from the prophet. In other words, you're, you're dealing with two personages and beings here. Not, not that he is the prophet that Moses foresaw in Deuteronomy 18.15, but, but maybe he's someone sent from God and the Messiah will be here soon. So the scope of the confusion permeates the crowds. But then notice verse 30 and 32. We see the unbelief of the religious leaders because that is why the crowds are confused and have been led astray. Notice in verse 30, Jesus at this point is speaking in the temple courts and there it says, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Uh, some have labeled Christ in the Gospel of John as also the elusive Messiah. In, in other words, you have these accounts where they're ready to act and they just can't. Or Jesus just withdraws from them and, and they don't carry through the attempt to arrest him or bring him into custody. And it's evident that behind this is, is certainly a Jewish element by and large, but also the religious leaders and authorities that's been building throughout Christ's ministry. So much so that we were told the reason Christ did not go into Judea was because the Jews wanted to kill him. But now also look at verse 32. And there we read, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering. Whispering is the word complaining, uh, talking about, look at what everyone's saying here. This is getting out of control. And it says, they heard what the crowd was whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Now, they're not sending Roman soldiers. In the temple, in the synagogue, you had temple guards. It was their task to maintain the order and integrity of the synagogue service and what took place in the synagogue proper, in the courts. So they are officials, but they're not Roman soldiers, uh, which is something you want to keep in mind for when they return to the Pharisees, the rulers, basically the Sanhedrin. So we've got the confusion among the people. We've got the outright denial and aggressive opposition among the religious leaders. And then, interesting scene, the beginning of chapter 7 verses 3 through 5, when, when Jesus says he's not going to the Feast of Tabernacles, he has this conversation with his brothers. 
and brothers here being his, his half-brothers, his other children that Mary and Joseph had. It says, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one wants to become a public figure. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They look at this situation, and, and you can almost maybe sense a note of sarcasm here. Uh, because of Jesus' opposition uh, and because of some other things we're told, he, he's actually lost some followers because he's spoken so clearly about where he's headed and what the cost is. So his brothers kind of chime in, look, if you, if you really want to be a public figure, you know, if you, you want to get more followers, go to the place where people are going to be and, and show off. Do these great things. So not only do you have the crowds misconceiving who Jesus is without excuse, the religious leaders, but his own brothers. And we know there's a change, at least with some of them, following the resurrection. But at this point, they are unbelievers. So that gives us a good glimpse at the scope of the misunderstanding. But in this sea of faces, in this mix of thoughts and opinions going back and forth, we come to the seriousness of misunderstanding the Messiah. In other words, there, there's a soul-searching question here that not just they need to answer, but we need to answer. And that is who? Who is Jesus? You know, is, is he just a man? Is he the son of God? Is he the prophet? Is he the Messiah? What's our answer? And so you come to verses 45 through 47. Remember, we have those intervals where Jesus came midway through. He taught in the temple courts. Then he seems to have kind of blended into the crowd, comes back on that very last day, the, the, the pinnacle of the Feast of Tabernacles, and then speaks once again. But you notice John is very good at portraying to us the disturbing irony of this situation. That Christ has never hidden who he is. He, he hasn't taught these things in some side alley and, and out of the way. But he's been very public and very blunt. But notice what happens in verses 45 through 47. And it's almost comical, knowing the whole story. It says, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees, who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? So remember the earlier part? They were sent. Go, go get him. Bring him in means bring him into custody. So you don't have to have a charge before you can bring someone into custody. You bring them into custody to then verify what your charge against them is. But they come back empty-handed, empty-handed, and their response is, no one ever spoke the way that this man does. So here they are. And this is why I said it's important to realize they're not Roman soldiers. In other words, temple guards would have been trained in the Old Testament. And there's something about Christ as he's connecting the Old Testament to 
why he came, who he came from, that even they are left saying, he, he's not an ordinary man. And he's clearly not a criminal or, or in some way creating an unrighteous disturbance in the place where we're worshiping God. The irony is that the religious leaders have been perpetrating lies about who Christ is. And you see this as it goes on in verse 47. They're not happy with this. And they say, you mean he has deceived you also? Then it goes on and says, have, has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Here's the irony. What are they saying? We know the law, so we know he can't be the Messiah. And the reason the crowds are swayed is because they're not experts in the law. They're not as smart as we are. They're not as righteous as we are. And the lies that they have perpetrated are those misconceptions we talked about. One is that Jesus is not in the line of David. So right away, that rules him out. He's not the Messiah. Ignoring the genealogical records. The second is that they say Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. We all know he came from Galilee. And as you listen to that, you, if you know your New Testament, you want to say to them, you're, you're half right. He, he did come from the region of Galilee, but when? After he was born in Bethlehem. And then he was raised in Nazareth of Galilee. And the third lie they perpetrate is that in verse 52, this bold statement, you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now, we talked today about the concern over fake news. This is a fake news statement. Because if you know the Old Testament, Jonah came from the area of Galilee. Nahum came from the area of Galilee, and possibly even Elijah. So they don't even know what they're actually saying here. But they're committed to this lie. What a sad irony as you listen to this. Those who knew God's law, who read it, who interpreted it for others, completely miss the true identity of the Messiah. But I wonder if in this narrative, there's more here than just that. But there's, there's a rebuke here for any of us who claim we know who Christ is, but we really don't live and back up that answer. Because you come across a familiar name in verse 50. We have Nicodemus. So you may remember Nicodemus earlier. He had a conversation with Christ. Uh, he did acknowledge Christ was certainly a teacher sent from God. And then he talked to him about what does it mean to be born again. But you get to verse 50 and it says Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, was one of their own number. He was a Pharisee. Um, and he asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Now, Nicodemus raises here a procedural question. 
has, has nothing really to do with, you could argue, him defiantly defending Christ or saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I believe he's the Messiah. But he does bring up a procedural issue. Notice he's quickly shot down where they reply, are you from Galilee too? In other words, implying what you've just said, that, that's something we'd expect from a part of the land where, well, we know, no, nothing righteous, nothing good comes out of there. Now, the reason I, I think Nicodemus is somewhat interesting here is what he says is not bad, it's not wrong, but is it good enough? Because the next time we read of Nicodemus is when they're coming for the body of Jesus. And all we're told is that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come to claim the body according to Jewish law and tradition. In other words, it raises the question, we're not certain if Nicodemus did become a believer. Now, maybe he did, maybe after the resurrection. But I think there's something disturbing here that his answer sounds good. But is it not good enough? In other words, is it possible for many of us, not just here, but in churches throughout the Upper Valley, that, that we can answer the question, oh, I know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's, he's my Lord and my Savior. Now, in words, you're exactly right. But is it possible that how we live and the lack of obedience in our life related to other parts of our life reveal that, that we're misunderstanding really who Jesus is. In other words, it is so easy to read this text and indict the religious leaders and the crowds. We look at that and we can say, what, what glaring disobedience. They're saying one thing, but, but they don't even know what they're saying. But I wonder if this text is also here to say to us, your answer may be good, but maybe it's not good enough. In other words, a life of obedience, of sharing Christ, wanting to grow in Christ, that's the answer as to who Jesus Christ is a life that shows itself continually being transformed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we don't need anything but your Spirit to take these words and to have us wrestle with them and ask ourselves some very important questions about does our life show in our obedience and our love for you and our love for one another that we know who Jesus Christ truly is. May there be no question, no complacency in our life that would cause others to wonder if we have that answer right. Lord, use us this week to not only be clear in our own hearts as to who Jesus is, but to lead others to that same truth we ask in Jesus' name, amen.